2: Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 46 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm here with the wonderful Alison Tate. How are you, Al?
0: Well, I'm pretty wonderful, Valerie, That's apparently. Good. Yes. I No, I, actually, I am pretty wonderful because school goes back this week, Val. Oh, yes. And um, so, you know, my life as I know it comes back to me. I get some time to actually think and do and stuff. It's going to be very exciting. So You might know yourself. Oh, well, I've got a t- should to my to-do list. It's as long as my arm and I can't read anything on it because I've written it all in pencil. So I'm going to have to go. I, d- what I do in the holidays is I'm like, oh, I'll, I'll sort that out when the boys go back to school. So everything is, oh, I'll sort that out later. And then I get to like the first day of the holidays and just or after the holidays and just go, oh, my God, <laughs> I've got so much to do. I've got forms to fill out and I have to draw a fantasy map and I have to, I've just got <laughs> truckloads. Yes, I'm drawing a map. Wow. Mm, You're excited, aren't you?
2: I am excited. And one of the reasons I'm excited is we've got some really great new reviews. Thank you, everyone, for leaving a review on iTunes and for people who have emailed us uh, to give us your feedback on the podcast or to ask questions. Um, We want to give a shout-out to Winifred. Hi, Winifred. Winifred Sadlier, who is a writer on the South Coast, and she has said, Hi Valerie and Alison, one of my New Year's resolutions is to tell you how much I enjoy your podcasts and congratulate you on a successful 2014 with your podcasting and writing. Well, Thank you, Winifred.
0: Thank you, and look at you are the only person I know that's actually carried through with a New Year's resolution. Yes, so well done.
2: Absolutely well done. So Winifred says, I started listening in June last year and caught up by November. I'm looking forward to following you again this year. I, I usually listen to you on my iPod while walking on my local South Coast beach or working in the garden. That sounds idyllic. Um, I believe I've learnt more from uh, more about writing from you both and from my local writing group, Scribblers than I could have learnt from a year's creative writing course at university. Now, thank you so much. That's made our – well, it's made my day. Has it made your day?
0: I made my day, absolutely.
2: And Winifred goes on to to write a bit more, but, you know, we can't read the whole thing. But thank you so much, Winifred. We really appreciate your feedback. So a lot has been happening uh, this week. Al. Well, just
0: before we go on, I have some feedback to share too oh. that I, I would just like to okay. give a big shout-out to Ali Milgate who – having listened to my dental woes last week, <laughs> has gone to the trouble of sharing with me a blog post that uh, that is um, about the story of her own experience with braces at the age of thirty five, um, just to make me feel better. And it's basically about how it's not so bad. So I'm feeling better because you know there was the mention last week of potentially requiring braces. So I am I'm feeling a little bit less like Alan Sheel this week. Um (laughs) but it is still a little bit there. So anyway I I shall I'll keep you all updated and if I do end up getting braces I will of course put a photograph on the internet because that's what you do. And
2: of course if you do want to hear an entire podcast of Alison sounding like Alan Seal. Uh, that <laughs> is episode 45. <laughs> <laughs> you told me
0: I didn't sound like Alan Seale. No, Did you, didn't. Me.
2: <laughs> you didn't. You <laughs> didn't. So, what's anyway. been happening in the world of writing and blogging and publishing this week?
0: Well, just moving on to more serious matters. Um, I came across a very interesting post on Writer Unboxed um, this week. And Writer Unboxed is one of my okay go-to uh, websites for great information about writing. And it, there's a post up there um, written by Dan Blank, and it's about email newsletters. And the question is, wh- why have one, basically? Mm. why? Well, it's why should authors have an email newsletter? Really? And, you yeah, know, it's quite an interesting thing because I, I have to admit that it is something that I, I am asked a lot, like, why do you have one? What do you put in it? Um, Do I really need one is the question that comes up a lot um, for me. And, I mean, I I do have a newsletter, obviously, and I really enjoy it because I like writing to people. I only write monthly. I know a lot of people do have a weekly newsletter, but I just really don't feel I've got enough to share it every week. Um, But this particular blog post talks about the reasons why you would and it talks about the fact that it's less crowded than trying to get people's attention on Facebook. Um, It's the one where people have actually given you permission to send them information um, and it has been proven as a sales tool. Now, unless you're actually putting in buy my book links every single week, it's hard to actually measure the value of that. But you know, it's, it's a possibility and I do get emails that are like that. I have to admit I don't stay on those email lists for too long, but they, I do get them. Um, anyway, it talks about the fact that lots of writers are sceptical about newsletters um, and then it goes on to talk about what to share and Dan's basic theory on what to share in your newsletter is, is your enthusiasm.
2: So are there really people who even question whether an email newsletter is worthwhile?
0: Look, there are, and I think it's mainly because it's just another thing to do. Do you? Under, I mean, it's it's that whole thing of like, I'm writing books, I'm doing Facebook, I'm doing Twitter, I'm doing Google+, I'm podcasting, I'm speaking, I'm X, Y, Z, and oh, the, he, here's another thing for me to have to do, another thing for me to have to convince people to sign up to, that kind of stuff. And I, I think people just, I mean, I, I guess it comes down to the fact that we all have limited time and what you... Wanting to do is put your time into the thing that's going to give you the most bang for your buck. Yeah. Would you think email is that?
2: Oh, look, I absolutely am a big fan of the email newsletter. Obviously, if done properly, um, I definitely think that it is a way for you to connect a bit more personally with your your you know tribe, I suppose. And I think that the reality is on Twitter and Facebook, you can't necessarily connect. Uh, directly um, with people because you, you, depending on the number of Twitter followers, I mean in Facebook you certainly can't, especially if you have a, you know, Facebook page, but if somebody has voluntarily given you their email address and indicated that they're happy to receive information from you, I think that it's such a valuable opportunity to connect with them and ultimately, I mean, of, of course it depends on what your goal is, but I'm assuming that as authors it's to sell more books and, you know, to connect with your fan base. And I can definitely say that with my own personal email newsletter, not the one from the Australian Writers' Centre, but my own one from, you know, valerieku.com I think that um, when I launched my book and, you know, I had been sending a weekly email newsletter so people were in anticipation of my book Power Stories and there is no doubt that during that launch it was my communication with them that helped you know, drive sales, and it ended up debuting as the number two business book on, on in in Australia, next uh, second to Richard Branson. But I definitely could not have done that without my email newsletter, without a yeah. doubt. I,
0: I think the other pr- people, the other problem people have is if if they're not yet published. Um, everyone says you know start now start now start now and there's this whole thing about like well what do I put in it you know like well who am I talking to and what do what do I say and I think maybe the mm. the idea of finding out who exactly you are talking to and what they want from you can be a good way to go forward as well because you've just recently done a survey haven't you
2: Mm, mm, mm. And, you know, this whole thing on what um, what should I write about, especially if you haven't, uh, you know, been published before, I got asked that question today because mm. somebody said to me, oh, I'm just writing about writing and, you know, I can do that. But, you know, and she's a, she was a crime writer. She mm. is a crime writer. And I said, well, the thing is that you're really, if you write about writing, you are, um, you know, you're attracting a certain audience and that's great, but it depends on what your book is about and the purpose of your email newsletter. If you want your email newsletter to drive sales of your book, which is a crime book, then maybe writing about writing isn't the, the right option. Maybe writing about crime because mm. you're obsessed with crime, you talk about, you know, real true crime, you talk about murders that occur, you talk about serial killers. They're the people who are probably going to be more interested in your book anyway, so why don't you write about crime instead of write about writing? Mm. So, yeah, you've got to ask yourself, what the purpose of your email newsletter is? And and who are you then, trying to talk to? Yeah, who are you trying mm. to talk to?
0: Mm. Anyway, it's a very interesting, um, interesting, uh, thought provoking little blog post, and yes. I think it's definitely worth you know having a look at that link and seeing what's out there. Um, now, speaking of what's out there, the other thing that I came, one of the other things I came across was um, I didn't, don't know if you knew this, mm-hmm. but Harper Collins mm-hmm. has a blog, and it's called Autonomy.
2: Oh yes. Hmm.
0: And it's quite an interesting thing because recently they've been running a series called Ask the HarperCollins Editor mm. and what they're doing in these blog posts and it's uh, very, very worth having... A look at these, um, they've been running over the last, you know, couple of weeks. Is they've been answering questions about various aspects of the publishing process, and they're getting the questions from. They have a forum on the website, on on the Autonomy website, where people can go in and talk to each other about various things and agents and all of that sort of stuff, and. They've pulled these questions off the forum, and they have given them to um, one of the HarperCollins editors from the UK. Yeah. and it's um it's a really interesting one. So the one I'm looking at particularly this week is um, part three, which is all about the submissions process. You know how how do you submit a book? Do they ever take books from other places? Can you really get off the slush pile? Mm. Um will you take a chance? Um, on a novel, if the author's good, but the, you know, if the, write, if the writing's good, but it's not quite there, all of that sort of stuff, it's really, really worth having a look at the kinds of things that, um, well, I, because, you know, the thing I find is that we're all asking the same questions. Yes. And they come up over and over again. So the chances are that your question is going to be here somewhere. Um, Definitely. So check out Autonomy, and they've got at the moment there's five parts up there and they cover off all manner of different aspects of the publishing um, of the publishing process. So definitely worth having a look if you're interested in learning more about how it all works.
2: And one of the questions that I get asked all the time, I'm sure you do as well, and it's answered on this uh, on this link, is will you only consider completed manuscripts? Mm-hmm. Or if the author has a strong voice, would you consider a work in progress? And they've answered, we will only commission on an uncompleted manuscript if the author has a very strong track record. But if we find a new writer whose style we think suits the imprint, we might help and encourage them through the process. In this instance, though, there is no guarantee of publication and it's also very difficult for an unpublished writer to have an unfinished manuscript read by an editor as the editor has so many finished ones to read, and I think that's such an important thing to know because yeah. there are so many people who say, you know, I, I'm I'm up, I'm about eighty percent done. Do you think I should send it to someone? God, oh, finish the last twenty percent.
0: Yes, exactly. <laughs> finish the thing. Make sure that you can. Like that's the that's the thing. Like I, I I've got several friends who who've worked their way through sort of eighty percent of a ninety thousand word novel and yeah. realised that they can't they can't resolve it the way they wanted to. Oh, No, and
2: it's
0: just. You know, like it's either you go back to the drawing board and start the whole process again, or you you abandon it for the time being. And I, it's I, it's not uncommon. Yes, yeah. <laughs> that's all I'm saying. It's not yeah. uncommon. Finish the thing. Speaking of endings, that yes. brings us neatly segues yes. us beautifully into another blog post that I um, came across, and this is on the kill zone. And the kill zone. We're obviously on a bit of a thriller thing tonight. The it's um it's a Uh, what do you call it communal blog um which is put together by 11 top authors in the thriller and mystery genre um but they talk a lot about it's not just about thrillers and mysteries and things like that but it's it's um they talk about a lot about the different aspects of writing and you know it's a a really great blog and they often get on the writer's digest best websites list and Mm. all that kind of stuff um and in fact they're on they're on the Write Life's 100 Best Websites for Writers 2015. I just see their little tag here. But anyway, this particular blog post is about the basics of endings. And yes. I found this really, really interesting because I have just finished the um, structural edit on book three of the Mapmaker Chronicles. And so I've, I've finished the trilogy. And it was a very it's a very funny feeling. The ending is a very, very difficult place in many, many ways because mm-hmm. lots and lots of people talk about... The beginning and how important it is to hook writers, uh, hook readers in, and make sure your first three chapters are fantastic so that you get an agent and all of that kind of stuff. But not that many people talk about endings, Mm -hmm. and I have to say that having now completed three novels for children and three adult novels, endings are really hard because you need to you need to resolve it, but you need to and leave the reader satisfied. Yes, and all the ends tied up. But without it feeling twee, and that can be very, very difficult. So this is some, this is a bit of an, uh, an overview on on the basics of endings and how to write an ending. And they talk a little bit about um, you know, like uh, how, that your your um, your protagonist needs a, a list of a series of goals to work towards, and once they're done, then you've got an ending and things like that. In my in my case, the natural ending of my trilogy is that there's a one year time frame based around you know around the story so the end of that year obviously brings on the ending however that's not the actual end and I had to then work through what was going to happen and how this was all going to work so it's it's worth having a read of this and think a little bit about your ending because it's not just a matter of the end you have (laughs) to think about those three sentences prior to that that are going to leave everybody wanting either wanting more or Um, warm, fuzzy feeling, just wanting to read your next book.
2: Did you know your ending uh, from the beginning or did your ending emerge, you know, 10% in, 50% in, 80% in?
0: Did I know my ending?
2: Yeah. (sighs) Or did you have to figure out your ending?
0: I had an idea of my ending, but I also knew that the ending couldn't be obvious. Mm. So I had to... Also bury my ending, and I also had to, um, as the story developed and as the books developed, more. I I ended up with with more um, more strings. They just more strings kept emerging, and I had to follow each of those strings through to its natural progression as well. So you end up you're not just tying up the the main the main storyline mm. you're also tying up all those subplots that you find emerging and and i found as i wrote even as i was writing book three i think i was like oh that's why i put that in book one it's like somewhere in the back of my mm. subconscious i had buried this thing in book one that i needed for the ending in book three it's wow. really it was quite an interesting process and um and as things and it, I was always so, so excited when I suddenly thought, Oh, that's how that's gonna work. And it all sort of started to come together for me towards towards the end. But yeah, no, it was a bit hairy for a while
2: there. <laughs> so obviously there's this blog post on the kill zone about endings, but I'm yes. actually interested to know what your top pieces of advice are for endings.
0: What are my top pieces? Well, I, I think it very much depends on the on the Genre that you are writing, like writing children's fiction, like I am at the moment, I had to wrap it up. It had to be tied up with a bow because kids don't want to walk away from a book wondering what happened. Like yeah. I, I've read books where I, I just like, well, what was that all about? Why have I just gone through ninety thousand words and you've left me with eighty six questions at the end that aren't, you know, aren't final? So, from my perspective, you know, writing for kids as I am, I, I was it was about sort of ensuring that everybody. Ended up where they needed to be, um, and that's not always easy either. Because you are having to, as I said, you're having to tie up lots and lots of strings, and you've got to, you've got to plot people around a chessboard a bit to keep make sure they're all moving in the right direction. Um, so I, I think I think it's knowing where your ending is. I, beginnings are difficult. Sometimes you start in the wrong place, and you don't even realise it till you're three chapters in that you really need to lose your first chapter. And endings are a little bit the same. I think it's, there's a tendency just to keep writing and writing and writing and writing. You have to know where the finish is. And um, picking that finish line is not always easy. Um, so in the instance of this particular um, of book three, I wrote the ending and I sent it off to my editor and she came back to me and she said, I really like what you've done here, but I'm going to take six paragraphs out of it. And I was like, oh, gee, why are we doing that? And she was like, well, you've done such a great job of, of this, you know, this beautiful, pithy, poignant sort of ending. And then you've added all this stuff in to, I don't know what, to kind of, you know, make a Hollywood ending. Who knows? But <laughs> she, she just cut them out. They're gone. They're just l- for, lost forevermore. And in reading back over it once I had done the edit and, you know, brought everything back together, I can see why. It's stronger. It didn't need all the other stuff. I had buried the ending in all this extra you know, cheering and celebration stuff that wasn't required.
2: Well, speaking of Hollywood endings and being lost forevermore, there was also a blog post a couple of weeks ago about, this, um, about the television series Lost, which obviously, if you followed it, became just bizarre and bizarre and bizarra as the seasons went on. And this blog post was saying that, this whoever wrote the blog post was saying that he had a chat to uh, one of the screen script writers of Lost and he said, come on guys, tell me how you you're going to tie it all up? How are you going to, you know, make it all make sense? Because, of course, that's what we want at the end. We mm. want it to make sense. Mm. And the script writers just said, oh, we're just not. <laughs> so, oh. just, <laughs> and they didn't. So annoying. <laughs> that is so
0: annoying. though. That's the thing. Like, I, I'm annoyed by that. I just walk away from that stuff just going, I feel ripped off and cheated. I wanted to know, I just want everything to be, you know, organized at the end. And obviously, I'm too much of a control freak, but anyway, let's not go there.
2: I think most people feel the same way, but mm. anyway, we have some news from Elizabeth Gilbert.
0: Well, we do, and it's quite interesting news. It is. She, I had heard rumblings around the internet that she was writing a book on creativity, mm. and then I came across this um, post that said that basically she's announced she announced her book that she would be publishing her new book on creativity. On Etsy.com. Right. So the book is called Big Magic, Creative Living Beyond Fear. And she put a little a little post up with a short video on the making of the book's cover and the um you know why she wrote the book and all of that sort of stuff. It's gonna offer strategies for living more creatively, um, which is gonna be interesting. And of course, you know, she's a she she's a fairly polarizing author in some way so I think her book will be very interesting but um, if you'd like to see the announcement you can go to etsy.com and it will be there and we'll put the link in the show notes to that but I just thought it was quite interesting that she chose an Etsy
2: as a place to I mean obviously it's great it's
0: about creativity but yeah I just I found it really interesting of that it was um, that that's where she chosen to make the announcement.
2: And of course, uh, Elizabeth Gilbert's TED talk on creativity is one of the most popular TED talks of all time, and it is very good. And um, you know, I follow her on Facebook, and she's she's you know she's. <sighs> Gone beyond being a writer, in that people really seem to look to her for spiritual advice and advice mm-hmm. on, you know, relationships, advice on happiness, of course, advice on writing, and she writes some fairly long missives on uh, Facebook about mm-hmm. about these things. Mm. So I have no doubt that the book is going to be very successful.
0: Oh yes, it's mm. going to be huge. I mm. know people who are waiting for it already, and yeah. it's still nine months away. You know, it's like having <laughs> a baby. <laughs> We'll all sit around and wait. Um, and so, my last little piece of of uh, blogging excitement that I've come across this week is: it's just um, when we were talking about people not knowing what to write in their email newsletters. Um, the other question I get asked all the time is, "What do I blog about?" And I, I came across the fact, and I don't know how I missed this, but Nora Roberts, who is a romance author, she also writes crime stuff, and but she is prolific. The woman writes like fifteen books a year and has done forever. How's that even um, possible? I don't know, but the, she's that's what she does. She's extraordinary, and she um so she is a prolific author. She is incredibly successful. She you know she tours, she does all this stuff, and she has a blog. And I thought to myself, now how is this possible? <laughs> how can this be possible? She's
2: superwoman.
0: She is, and I went to have a little look, and of course, she has a publicist who writes her blog for her her name is laura she also does the facebook page she goes to nora's book signings and is by her side and does all this stuff so she's basically nora's right-hand woman and nora's right-hand woman writes the blog nor well put it this way nora also writes bits of it and talks about what she does on weekends and things like that but i just thought people who were wondering what to put in Nora's blog might find it quite interesting to have a look at nora's yeah. because she does cover off a whole lot of stuff and she writes about the stuff that her readers are interested in so definitely worth just seeing how she goes about it. And I'm just thinking, you know, if if Nora and Laura, as a team, <laughs> can fit blogging into their into their busy author schedule, then I'm pretty sure anyone can.
2: No excuses. No excuses. So one author who has a very busy author schedule is James Phelan. Now James is a Melbourne-based author, and he's 35 years old, and he has published. 23 novels and one non-fiction book.
0: So, like, such a late starter.
2: (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, James has always wanted to be a novelist, even at school, but he studied architecture initially oh. because, um, and as you'll hear in the uh, interview, he thought that, uh, you know, be, if you want to be an author, that's what happened when you're, like, old. <laughs> so he thought, <laughs> thought he'd have a career first and then started writing books when he was old. Um, but anyway, he's a crime thriller writer and um, we're going to find out a lot more about him right now. James Phelan is the best-selling author of 23 novels and one work of non-fiction. From his teens, he wanted to be a novelist, but then studied architecture before turning to writing. He has published five thrillers in the Lachlan Fox series, as well as the Alone trilogy of young adult post-apocalyptic novels and a 13-book series for Scholastic. His latest book is The Hunted, the second in the Jed Walker thriller series. So, James, thanks for joining us today.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: Well, I have *The Hunted* in my hands, and uh, it's—you know—I'm about halfway through. I admit, haven't quite got to the end yet because I only started it two days ago. But I'm gripped. Now, for people who haven't heard of *The Hunted* yet, can you tell people what it's about?
1: Yeah, sure. Look, it's a thriller. It's a sequel to a novel I had out last year called *The Spy*, and I guess it uh, falls into the suspense realm of uh, thrillers, which is something a a bit different for me. I've had a a previous series before of five books, uh, but this one follows a character, Jed Walker, who's an ex-CIA agent. And uh, in The Hunted, he's spending a few days sort of kicking around the Ozarks in America, trying to find a uh, Navy SEAL who doesn't want to be found, and uh, he needs to find him before someone else does, to sort of unravel the mystery at the heart of the novel.
2: And where did the seed of this idea come from? How did this come into your brain?
1: Yeah, look um, the past ten years that I've been a novelist, uh, I've always been the type of a reader and writer to uh, just absorb a whole lot of uh, material. So when I was reading about all um, the sort of hunting down of Bill Martin and uh, when they found him, they found a couple of phone numbers sewn into his clothing. And that just sort of got my mind ticking over, you know, what were those phone numbers for? You know, who, where, who do they belong to? And uh, so that's kind of how it, how it started. And the more I thought about it, the more I looked into um, sort of a thrilling framework of the story around that. I started to also think, okay, well, hang on, who were these guys that went in there? What could they have seen in that house in Pakistan? Um, and what could possibly be worth sort of hunting them all down for Mm. a few years later.
2: Now, I I read on your website that you were interested in writing from your school days, but then you studied architecture. Can you just take us back to why you decided that before we get back into your writing again?
1: (laughs) Yeah, sure. Uh, Look, for me, uh, being a writer was always the dream. I always thought to be a novelist or an author would be my absolute dream job. Uh, but as a teenager, when I was reading thrillers, sort of likes as John McCrae or Tom Clancy or uh, Ian Fleming or Robert Ludlum, uh, I just thought the one thing all those guys have in common is that they're old dudes. So I, <laughs> at back at high school, I thought, okay, when I grow up, I want to be an old dude. So I can be a writer, and all my friends at school are like, really? I'm like, yeah, that's, yeah, that's what you have to do. So. Um, and I think that also came from the fact that uh, I'd just i I'd never met any other writers or anything like that. Um, but all these guys, they had had a career first, then they went off and, and they were writing. So I thought, okay, I'm, I'm very interested in design and it's something very creative. Um, I'll be an architect, I'll do that, I'll retire one day, and then I'll become a writer. So that was kind of the, the career path I had in mind. Um, <laughs> And I just I kind of I guess I brought that whole that whole retirement thing early. So uh, after I going off studied architecture um, a few years into that, I decided, hang on a second. If writing is my dream, and I had been ticking away at a novel which I'd actually started um, the last couple of years of high school. Uh, if that's the dream, why not see if I can finish writing this book now? And if I enjoy the process and I'll see that getting it published, then we'll, we'll see from there. And uh, that whole process took about five years in the end to sort of you know, write the book, get the first book published and, and take it from there.
2: Now, I understand that your first published book was actually non-fiction, is that right? Literati?
1: Yeah, that's right. So um, so that, that was...
2: Wasn't... Yeah, sorry, you go on.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, that wasn't my title. I, I called it the Australian writer's desk and, and the publisher, John Wiley, uh, they said, okay, we'll call it Literati... Australian contemporary literary figures discuss fear, frustrations, and fame. So they write the alliteration, but basically (laughs) it was an author interview book, uh, 21 Australian writers, and I traveled around the country and sat down with them for a few hours and just had a chat about the craft of writing and the process that they go through and all the rest of it. Um, and that's how I got my foot in the door initially.
2: So when you interviewed those 21 people for the book, did you then realise you didn't have to be an old guy? What did um, you learn from them about your, that helped you with your writing, about from getting a foot in the door?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, for me, I'd already written my first novel, Fox Hunt, my first thriller, and I was sort of well into the way of, of writing the second novel. Um, I had been sort of shopping those around for a couple of years overseas to agents So I'd already been through the process a bit myself of of trying to get published, Um, and for me, I guess it was, I saw a bit of a hole at the time in publishing for a book like that, where it would be a book behind the curtain of the creative process, Um, but also for anyone who was a fan of those writers involved in the book, so anyone from Sonia Hart and Robert Drew and John Birmingham and... Andy Griffiths and Matthew Riley and all these sorts of guys and, and girls. Um, I just said, yeah, it, it would be a, a fascinating sort of look behind the scenes for, for someone who's either a fan of their work or interested in writing. Um, and I certainly learned a lot through that process, um, not only through the the actual process itself of putting that book together, it was a very tight time frame for publication, so it was a bit of a whirlwind to get that all happening, mm-hmm. um, but also just to hear from all these other writers that, Everyone's journey is absolutely unique. Um, even though now I have done a master's and a PhD in, in mm. writing and literature, mm. it doesn't guarantee you getting published anywhere. Um, so everyone finds their own way in and everyone comes from completely different walks of life and different ages and backgrounds and all the rest of it. Mm.
2: So then you went into fiction, Fox Hunt, which is the first in a series of books featuring your key characters, Lachlan Fox and Alistair Gamaldi. These books have, like you know, they're thrillers, they're, they're, they're set all around the world in very exotic locations in, you know, Nigeria and Chechnya and all sorts of places. Tell us how you get to know those locations and what you do to research. Do you... Do you go there? Do you go rely on Google Street View? What do you do?
1: Yeah, sure. Look, it's different for um, for every book. I mean I've written twenty four books now and um, each process has been different. If you can go to some place it's great and you can sort of you know, fill in the colour uh, as you as you're writing, but um, and I've always got a notebook with me as well and I'm jotting down little little um, tiny arcane details, I guess, that when you're writing a scene in Rome or Paris or New York, wherever it might be, um, you can put some of the sights and sounds and smells and whatever it might be. So, um, so that's one aspect. But definitely for my first book, there are a couple of places, so in Fox Hunt, that I didn't go to and still haven't been to, um, like Chennai and that sort of thing. And for me, it was just being an avid reader and consumer of, of news at the time and With those Lachlan Fox books, he's an investigative journalist, so he's always going to sort of different hotspots or what have you around the world, and he's basically shining a light into these um, dark corners to uncover some truth. So at the time I was thinking, okay, well, why is Russia spending so much resources and and lives on this tiny little state of Chechnya? And uh, I probably spent about a year, a year and a half researching that, and it's reading as much as I could. Um, and then if you're reading blogs and you're reading people's personal accounts and that sort of thing who have been to these places or have lived through these situations at the moment, might being, you know, all these people who are tweeting and writing about what it's like in Ukraine at the moment, you can then sort of, you know, colour your story with all those little, um, all those little pieces of, of fact and that sort of thing to build up your setting. Uh, but I think as well for me at the end of the day, it's all driven by a character. So if you're if you feel for the character and you believe in what they're doing in terms of their motivations, then uh, you'll follow them on that journey and even if it's written in the third person, you're still kind of seeing it through their worldview and their experiences.
2: So you've written adult bu- books for adults now and books for young adults and, as you've mentioned, 24 books and you're, what, 35 years old? <laughs> is, that, is, that, is that right?
1: Yeah, that's
2: right. So, you know, you you've, when you think of your idea for a book, let's say for a book for an adult, what's the gestation period from generally that that time when you've thought, okay, this is a goer, to, you know, the time that you spend drafting a manuscript and then the time that you spend editing it, let's say?
1: Yeah, sure. Look, I think it, at the quickest end of, at the scale, it would be about 12 months. Um, and at the longer end, it could be up to about 10 years. Yeah. So if I look at Fox on that first novel, you know, I had the germ of an idea for that, particularly the characters. Uh, when I was 15, it wasn't until I was 21 that I wrote the first draft. Um, it wasn't until I was 25 that I then got that contracted and, and later published. And in that 10-year sort of period, it did go through a lot of incarnations and the plot line changed a lot and uh, particularly that four years from first draft to getting it published, um, I really you know, did a lot of redrafts of that novel and did a lot of work on the sequel and I already knew that writing a sequel, my writing had improved and it was a better book. Um, and I feel that generally with all my books, with each one, you know, I'm just trying to kind of better myself in terms of storytelling and and my style the prose and all the rest of it. And that's what keeps me interested and, and drives me along.
2: Do you um, feel it gets easier?
1: Ooh, in ways it does. In other ways it doesn't. I think definitely the second book, um, or what is quite difficult. And also whatever the book is that, um, might be the second book that you have published. So for a lot of writers, the first one or two or three books will never see the light of day and, uh, they're in a the bottom drawer somewhere and that's their apprenticeship and they've made their mistakes and that's great because you can sort of do that in in private and then you know when your books come out they're a bit more polished um so I look back at my first couple of books on Hunt and Patriot Act and I sort of like cringe a little bit going oh look I should have done this should have done that that said you know they're the best I could do at the time and you know I might be giving a talk somewhere or doing a book signing and and people will come up with one of those books and say that's their favourite. So, so you never know. But for me as a creator, I always feel that my writing does improve. Um, and certainly, yeah, there's, there's pros and cons. Some things get easier. Other things remain just as hard. And I think that's all about you know the type of person you are. Though, If you're still just pushing yourself and, and driving yourself to do better than... Then that's what it's going to be like
2: now you say that each book that you you know want to better your craft and apart from experience of course what do you what proactive things do you do to better your craft
1: look uh, I think it all just comes down to reading and then practicing so the more you read and, and the better books that they are I think you're going to learn from that and you can even learn from from reading some bad books as well and and pulling them apart you know, in your mind's eye or even literally with a, with a pattern pen or what have you and, and go, okay, what's not working here? Is it, is it the style? Is it the, the pacing? Is it the characterisation? Um, so you certainly learn from that. So um, if I look back to you know, doing my master's and PhD, did they help me get published? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, did I learn from them? Like, will I ever actually use those degrees to go and teach? Probably not. Uh, but did I learn from from being around books for that whole time? Um, I, I certainly did. So definitely from just being a mercy story, and even things like TV and, and film, whether you're watching or whether you're reading scripts, you learn from that as well. So I think it's about reading very broadly. Um, and then there's practicing your craft. And I'm the type of writer that if I sit down and write a thriller that might be 100,000 words, uh, and I sit down and do three or four months of a first draft, uh, Pretty much what's on the page, I might cut out about 5% and then that's it. It'll go to my editors. Uh, however, I do have friends who, who work different ways. They might sit down and start writing. They don't really know where the story's going. You know, they get 20,000 words in or 150 pages in and then they go, oh, hang on, I've hit a roadblock. I don't know where it's going. I've gone in the wrong direction. I'm going to toss that out. And, I mean, it works differently for everyone, but um, unfortunately I'm not the sort of person that, you know, can look at that method and go, okay, I've got two or three months of time to kind of waste doing that. Uh, but I think that comes down to the thinking time as well. And uh, I do spend a lot of time sort of thinking with a notebook before I actually sit down and write from page one. I'll spend a month, minimum, if not three months, thinking about what that book's going to be.
2: Wow. So before you actually sit down and write page one, do you know what's... Happening in every at most key stages of your plot?
1: Not really. Uh, So for me, at any given time, let's say right now, you know, push came to shove, I could say, okay, I've got about twenty storylines that are worthy of being a novel, and and they're sort of at the top of the pile of just ideas I might have jotted down in notebooks. And I just kind of trust my gut that each year when I'm doing a new contract and doing a new book that the book that rises to the top of that list in my mind's eye is the one that I'll go, okay, I'm going to spend a couple months thinking about that and plotting and researching and the rest of it. Um, I might end up with about a hundred pages of notes, mm. but for me, it's more just about some key story points. It's about the characters, how I imagine them and what I imagine to be their journey. Mm. Uh, so a few sort of key touchstones for them in, in their journey throughout the, throughout the novel. Um, But for me, the one thing I do need to have sort of nailed down is what happens at the end. So it's not so much a sense of, okay, my character Jed Walker, Lachlan Fox, uh, uncovers this, and this is a revelation, a twist, and blah, 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 and and this is really who uh, the true character of of the, uh, the antagonist is going to be it's not so much blow by blow like that, but it's more of a sense of how I want the reader to feel at the end. Do I want to sort of blow their minds? Do I want them to look back at the entire novel and look back to this character and see them in a, in a different light? It's that sort of thing. And uh, for me, I liken that to sort of buying a plane ticket. I know I'm going to uh, Sydney or New York or wherever I might be going, so I kind of know my destination and, you know, hopefully from page one to page Four or five hundred, three or four months later, I will get to that destination. Mm. Um, but what happens in that journey, even though I have an idea of what's going to happen, because I have done it before, uh, it still surprises me every day.
2: Mm-hmm. What particular thing are you good at when it comes to writing? What's your writing superpower?
1: Hmm, drinking coffee. That could be, <laughs> that could be a superpower. Uh, what am I good at in writing? What's my mm. superpower? Oh, man, that's a tough one, I guess. Uh, Look, I I think it's just keeping my writing uh, fresh and evolving my writing. And I think that's a a healthy thing to not be afraid of doing that. I think one of my favourite and one of the best thriller writers around at the moment, John Macare, and obviously he's been around a long time. He's in his 80s. And I think he's writing as well as he ever has. And if I look at his books and his career he has evolved his writing style throughout time, whereas a lot of writers, they have their style, they stick to it, and for better or worse, they won't sort of change that for the times. Mm. Um, so I think that's that's a good thing to have. Uh, something else which I guess is pretty handy, and I learned this from, you know, maybe it's an innate thing and this is how I work, uh, but the writers that, my interview in this writing and some of my friends today who are writers uh, who I think are quite successful can do this as well, is that you can write kind of anywhere, anytime. It's not that you can only write with this pen or when the sun is just so or with a particular brand of you know, ginning or martini or something. Um, and there are a lot of writers who are like that. Uh, and they're very superstitious and this and that, and I can kind of understand that, and I think maybe a certain degree of OCD might come sometimes to the territory, but I think it's very handy if you're a working writer and you're doing it full-time and you're going on book tours and you're, and you're travelling around giving talks and all the rest of that, you have to be able to work in in airport lounges and hotels and cafes and wherever
2: it might be. So you're obviously very adaptable, um, but you do like coffee, it sounds like, when you're writing. Even though you need to be able to write in a whole range of different places, do you have any kind of routine or or, or system when you're actually, you know, drafting the, the manuscript?
1: Uh, not particularly. I mean, if I do have any, I do start my morning at a local cafe, um, and I'll do a couple of hours there. I usually write to music, so I'll have my headphones in. Um, so while I don't mind, you know, like, peeking around me, uh, I do prefer to sort of you know, be in charge of, I guess, the noise levels or, or what have you rather than, than hearing whatever the cafe might be playing. Um, and I do think music helps me as well with sort of setting the scene of whatever I'm writing at the moment just to sort of put a bit of a background to it. Do
2: you choose your music to suit the
1: scene or what uh, I do, yeah. So for whatever I'm doing that day, so every day I'll, uh, the way I'll approach it is that I'll particularly find a cafe that doesn't have Wi-Fi, it's not an alternative Wi-Fi, so I'm not tempted to look at emails or anything mm. like that. Uh, so I'm basically falling from, you know, and this is an ideal world of an ideal morning, but I'll fall from sort of sleep into, straight into writing uh, and I'll usually start pretty early, 7, 7.30. Mm and uh, typing away, do a couple of hours, and that's usually a really good writing time. You know, it'll it'll come quite easily. Um, And I always begin by reading over what I've written the previous day. So it could be two or three or four chapters, whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'll do a little polish of that work. So that's sort of my first edit, but it also gets me back into the story and where I was at, and also the voice Mm -hmm. um, and the tone of that particular part of the novel and pace and all the rest of it, and then I begin that day's work. Uh, so that's sort of my morning block. I'll come back doing emails and things and admin and whatever I've got to do, and then I'll do another chunk sort of through the day in the afternoon, have another break, and then depending on where I'm at with deadlines and things, I'll, I'll do some more work in the evening.
2: Okay, so that's, that's pretty much a routine. Um, you've also written well, with YA series alone. What do you need to do or what... Yeah, what do you need to do to change gears, you know, when you're writing for a different audience, obviously a much younger audience? Is there anything you need to do to get it? Do you play different music or, you know, what do you do?
1: Yeah, uh, well, there's a few things, actually. So, you know, what have I got now? Eight thrillers, and that's number seven is The Hunter, and I'm just sort of working on number eight at the moment. Uh, The Alone Trilogy is for young adults, so I guess the biggest change for me in writing that trilogy was that it was... um, written in the first person yeah. rather than a sort of third-person omniscient, you know, godlike narrator. Yeah. So that, for me, was probably the biggest uh, change. Now, obviously, there's a, there's a bit of a change in in language and that sort of thing, but that's very easy to do in terms of, you know, if you're you know, perhaps not going to swear or, yeah. or not have a sex scene or whatever it might be. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, for me, it was just, going, okay, this is something I'm going to write in the first person. So it was, that automatically made it a very different process for me, uh, just being that one particular 16-year-old campus head for, for three novels. Uh, and that was a lot of fun. Uh, more recently, so that came out about three years ago, let's say, um, four years now, uh, I've also written a 13-book series for Scholastic. Mm. And uh, that's, I guess they would call that middle grade, so it's probably for ages eight age to... About 14 or something. Mm. And that was really in the third person, but that was different yet again, just being an even younger audience. In that, um, particularly, I think, with that age group, there are a lot of gatekeepers, whether it's librarians or, or teachers or parents. So you are even more aware of content and language and that sort of thing. But at the end of the day, I think what all of my novels have in common is um, characters, hopefully, that we sort of root for and enjoy and follow their journey throughout a book and a series and all of that. But also, they're hopefully fast-paced and Mm. and entertaining and they're keeping you turning the pages along the way.
2: So tackling the YA series and also the middle grade series, is that something that you consciously decided, you know, I'm going to try something different? Or did someone like your agent suggest it to you? Uh,
1: Definitely the young adult, that's how it came about. It was... um, 2008 when I wrote the first one, and then it was published in, in 2010. So I wrote that uncontracted, yeah. um, and it, it came about because uh, where was I then? So I'd signed my third and fourth book deal for my thrillers. I'd just written my third novel, Blood Oil. Uh, it took me six months to write. So all of a sudden, uh, I'm just working at home, and you know, I've, I've finished a book in six months, and that's from sort of woes you go with all the editing and everything. Uh, so I thought, what am I going to do for the other six months of the year? And I had an idea I'd been thinking out for a while uh, for a young adult novel. just at the back of my mind. I thought, you know what, I think now's the time. Why not just sort of give it a shot and uh, see how that goes? And um, when I suggested that to my agent, she said, look, that's great, you know, blah, blah, blah why don't you have a few meetings first just to see what publishers are looking for, because it kind of makes sense to, to have a contract, then write a book, and blah, blah, blah. So I said, okay. Uh, and I had heaps of heaps of meetings with publishers, and I think it's one of those things, once you're in, you're in, and if your books are selling and stuff, people will want to work with you, and um, and they all wanted me to write, I guess, similar to Lachlan Fox, to that series, but... Uh, for a younger audience, so thrillers but geared towards boys and a lot of them wanted something like a young teenage spy type character and for me that just seemed like a big cliche and more than something I could bring myself to do, it was getting quite prescriptive so in the end I sat down, wrote the first draft of the Alone trilogy uh, which is a post-apocalyptic trilogy and uh, at the time that also formed part of my PhD and for me, it was all about, you know, sort of loading symbolism and allegory and stuff into a, a tale for, for young adults, similar to some of the stuff that I loved as a kid. And, uh, and that's how that came to be. And then it was uh, well-received, which was really lovely. Cause, uh, I think initially I thought oh, I might just sort of sink without a trace because at the time, young adult was growing in popularity, but it wasn't sort of, I guess, what it is today, the really hot sort of publishing area. Um, and then, scratchy, came along and said, look, we've read that and we loved it. Would you do a 13-book serialised um, adventure series for us and, and the rest is up to you, you and write whatever you want to write about? And I did think kind of long and hard about that because I knew it was going to be a lot of work and it ended up being about three to four years of, of full-time work. But when I say full-time, I did also write two thrillers in that time as well. Uh, so it was literally just, uh, yeah, let's say, 70 hours a week for that time. i just working on that series. Wow. <laughs> and um, uh, to be on the other side of it, I mean, it's been fantastic, and it's been very big here and overseas. So I'm, I'm glad I did it, and it does contain uh, the story that I had wanted to write probably since I was a kid, so it's all about the dream world. And uh, for me, you know, way back to when I read the BFG and, a few other books as a kid I thought, okay, it would be cool one day, uh, to write a series about the dream of a Wow. But so, here I am rambling on about. It. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um let's come back to the Hunted. What um this is a book that's out now. What was the hardest thing about it about
1: writing it? Yeah, look for as I said, it's a, it is a thriller. It's the second in this character but it can be read as a standalone uh, and that's the same with all my thrillers. So I knew the character but as I approach this book like all the other thrillers I'm keenly aware that this could be the first book that a reader picks up so I've got to make it accessible for someone who's never met mm-hmm. Jed Walker and any of the other characters in there. So I guess that's always a bit of a challenge. Uh, the other one was I, I was keenly aware that for this series, I'm doing a bit of a shift away from um, my previous five-book thriller series uh, with Lachlan Fox, where it's a bit more sort of in a Jason Bourne-type thriller territory in, or James Bond and all the rest of it, where you're following someone and the stakes are very high and the tension is mounting and all the rest of it, uh, whereas the Walker books, they're more of a slow burn. It's more of suspense and you're really trying to unravel what's, what's going on throughout the series and for me writing suspense that I guess what comes with that territory is uh, uh, a a lot of fear um, on my part as a creator so I'm exploring the story as I'm going along as well I'm sure I know the ending and I'm just I guess posing a question at the start who is it that's after these seals why do they want to kill them all Seals. I mean Navy Seals for anyone who's yes. forgotten that from the start of our conversation. Yes. Um, so these are the guys that went in and got the invited. Who would want to do that? Is it a reprisal? Is it because of something they saw there in, in the house and a that? So we're kind of unravelling all that with our character as we're going along. And if, if you listeners think of um, the Lee Child series, with Jack Reacher and his character... It's that type of, uh, of I guess, a slow burn, even though it might span a day or two the storyline, and even though you might pick it up and read it in a few hours or a day or two, uh, you are just compelled to just keep turning those pages and go, hang on, what is this, what is this, what is this? So, yeah, so for me, building that suspense, I think um, it's very easy to do badly, but to do well takes a lot of work, and that would definitely be the biggest challenge, uh, which I think I've, I've done pretty well in The hunt. If I look back and even if I think about what I said before about my, my books improving, I think this is uh, a strong book uh, even compared to last year's book, The Spy.
2: And what was the most fun thing about writing it or enjoyable thing about writing <laughs>
1: Look, I think for me, always typing the end is, uh, is a lot of fun because it really is like doing a marathon. Yeah. And you you get to that point and you go, you know what, I got there. And I think, I even think as I'm doing that, you know what, we got there because I've taken those characters on that journey or they've taken me, I don't know how it is, it's a, some sort of symbiotic time relationship. But somehow we got there and, um, and, it, and it worked. So that's always really satisfying to, to get to that moment. Um, the other thing is, as i said about my, my working method and, and writing each, each day at the cafe and, and that sort of thing. Um, so when I'm in that first draft zone of, of working, and I do work every day during that period because um, the mind is always sort of ticking over with the storyline, uh, every day that I sit down and write, even though I kind of have an idea of where the story will be going that day when I sit down. Um, A couple little things, two or three or four things will happen that I could never have imagined, never have plotted out or pre-planned, like a character will tell a lie, instead of telling the truth, or whatever it might be, in sort of the heat of that moment, I guess. And to me, that's the magic of, of being a writer and a storyteller. And then the moments that... I know as a reader when you're reading books and you know, those little moments will happen and you go, oh, that's, that's great. You know, I didn't see that hat coming. or That just gives that character so much more depth and colour and uh, interest. So for me, that's the day-to-day joys of writing because it is, at the end of the day, it is an arduous process. It is a job like any other job. Uh, it is grueling. Like I'm thinking already, I'm off to America in about 10 days for a full month on book tour which you think oh that's, that's glamorous and wonderful and you get flown around everywhere and looked after sure that's all good but it is through the midwest this time um, I've got the coasts later in the year but I think it's like negative 10 to 0 degrees pretty much everywhere I'm going <laughs> and uh, and I've literally got two or three events every day so it's going to be a lot of work and I've got to get back and and get cracky on writing book three in a series.
2: But you love it anyway.
1: Oh, look, I I do love it. It's one of those things. I think I have to sometimes remind myself, Okay, it's literally, it'll be 10 years this year since my first book, Literati, came out. Um, um, 2006 was my first novel, so nine years of being a full-time novelist. This is my dream job, and I'm I'm very fortunate that I can do it full-time. Um, there is a lot of hard work, but it's hard work only because I choose it to be. You know, I'm the sucker that signs all these uh, contracts. <laughs> Who would sign a first book contract? Some kind of idiot. But um yeah, look, it's a lot of fun, uh, and you just have to kind of sit back sometimes and and look at that and go, okay, well, hang on. It's really lovely to get fan mail, and I know that looking ahead now at this month of running around America, that's going to be a lot of hard work, um, and I guess I'm going into it as well. Coming off the back of uh, September last year, I finished pretty much a year-long tour, uh, mainly through Australia, but overseas as well, for that uh, Scholastic Series, and by the end of that, I was just ready to fall in a heat and go, I'm done with touring, uh, but it's something you have to do, you know, it's, it's not only built into your contracts. It just goes with the territory. If you you want readers, you have to get out there and and meet them and be prepared to to give a bit of yourself as well.
2: And fortunately, you didn't have to wait until you were old to make it all happen.
1: I don't know. I'm feeling pretty old.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, on that note, thank you so much for your time today, James. That was great. And um, everyone who's listening, The Hunted by James Phelan, Um, awesome book. Uh, And, um, yeah, thanks for your time today.
1: No worries. Thanks for having me.
2: So there you go, that's our interview with James Phelan and he you may have noticed he spoke in fairly low tones because his baby was sleeping.
0: <laughs> I can relate to that. Remember we did, <laughs> do you remember we did that podcast? I can't remember which one it was but I had the boys asleep and I was, it was like I was Harry Potter under the stairs. In the cupboard.
2: Yes, in
0: the cupboard. <laughs> that's exactly what it feels like.
2: Oh, dear. So someone uh, suggested a, our web pick or our app pick for us, didn't they?
0: Oh, they did, and don't we love people that suggest things like Where that? Was it? Thank you so much. Um it was uh, Countess White. on Twitter at Countess White and she suggested that we have a look at an app called Rescue Time which I then duly dispatched you to do so tell us all about it.
2: So Rescue Time it's quite a clever app and it's probably good if you've got ADHD or you find that you procrastinate a bit because it actually tracks how you spend your time. So it helps you understand your daily habits so that it knows, okay, you've spent this much time on these these applications, this much time on these websites, and gives you a detailed report basically on your activity for the day. So it's kind of scary in a sense because you may well discover that instead of spending, you know, 60% of your day on writing, you might have actually spent 60% of your day or 90% of your day on Facebook. So (laughs) it's It's... probably quite... worthwhile i haven't used it yet um but it's probably quite worthwhile for you to get a real idea of how you spend your day if you're i suppose if you wanted to be really sneaky you could you know uh install it on there and see how your children spend their day or how your a good idea. Their day.
0: but speaking of how you spend your day let's just have a little catch up on your seven minute workout <laughs> How are you spending your days with your seven-minute – how's that going with your rescue time?
2: Yeah, right. So, uh, the app pick for last week, if you um, uh, haven't caught up yet, uh, it was the 7-Minute Workout, which is an app on your iPhone which gives you a workout in – seven. or guides you through a workout in seven minutes. And, of course, I thought this was going to be great. It's great for writers. (laughs) I installed it. Of course, I did it that day. And – uh, it's been really hot, Al, you know. I've yeah, so what you're saying, saying is you've done days. it once. It's been really hot.
0: You did one seven-minute workout in a week. I'm
2: going to do more.
0: Of course you are. I'm going to check in <laughs> with you every week.
2: Okay? Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so our working writer's tip. For this week, there's been a really interesting discussion going on in the Australian Writers Centre's uh, graduate group, and uh, which is a private group just for graduates. And um, it's about how to train yourself or how to teach yourself to write faster. Because there are some people who are able to, you know, just write uh, three stories in a week, or you know, I know that some people who have to write, especially news reporters, who have to write five stories in one day. Which is, mm. But there are some people who are saying that it takes them a month to write a good feature because they labour over every word. Now, Mm -hmm. what's your advice? How can people train themselves to write faster?
0: Well, you, you can't write one story a month because <laughs> you're just not you're ever going to make it. You'll <laughs> starve, exactly. Um, okay, so I've got a few tips on this. Is this is for because, magazine writing, everyone, by the magazine way. Magazine yeah. writing, features writing. Mm. So I have a few tips on this because this is, this is um, you know, I had to do this. Yes. So the first thing that taught me how to write a feature really quickly was to work in a really dr- deadline-driven environment. Yep. Um so my first full-time writing job was at Clio mm. and I had a set number of features as well as various department pages to look after every month. Mm. Um so there was just you just had to learn to get on with it. And yep. there is, you know, there's nothing quite like a an editor breathing down your neck. Yep. So I suggest deadlines are a very good thing. I think people need to, you know, even if even if the deadline that they're working to is a month away, you know give yourself 2 weeks <laughs> mm. make it make it harder because you need to you need to do that the second thing that i would say is that practice is really like the key to the whole thing I think writing is like any muscle and the more that you use it then the better you become at it and particularly when you're writing features and you, you are targeting a publication like once you've got one story over the line with that publication then you have a pretty good idea of what that publication requires yeah. so it should be easier to write the next one so if you're struggling a little bit then try targeting the same publication over and over for a little while get that down pat, then move on to the next publication rather than scattergun a approach across the entire world because then you're sort of like, you're changing voices and tones and things all the time. So that's another thing. I would also suggest blogging. Blogging is great for, you know, the the discipline of of, of maintaining a daily blog is a great way just to get your writing going. So so those would be three tips. What would you say?
2: Oh, look, I would absolutely agree to all of the above and I'm not sure whether I can add add any others, but I am absolutely a big believer in the whole deadline-driven thing. Like Mm -hmm. when you have a deadline, you have no choice but to write faster. So pitch more, like pitch more stories to more editors so that you have more on your plate and then you have absolutely no choice except to structure your time and get it done and you'll find you'll write faster there is no Uh, other option
0: the other thing i would say and this is something that i cover in my um my my ebook that i have called get paid to write and this is one of the secrets i think of freelancing success and that is if you find someone who is a good interview. If you come across a psychologist that that knows what they're on about and gives you great quotes and has, you know, it, it it has an idea of how to deal with the media because that can be a massive bonus. Say to them, "Do you mind if I ring you again yeah. when I have another story?" Keep that person in your contact file and con it, like, really nurture your contacts because you can get your your stories done a lot faster if you know that you have sources that will deliver what you need. Yep,
2: yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, yeah,
0: so that's just one of the many exciting tips.
2: And we'll put it a… Might- well, we'll put a link in the show notes on how to get um, Alison's book, Get Paid to Write. Hmm. Uh, and also another useful resource is the Australian Writers' Centre uh, newsletter, weekly yes. newsletter. So that's got lots of uh, useful tips and advice on that sort of thing as well. So you can find that at writerscentre.com.au slash news. So that brings us to the end of our podcast this week. What are you up to this week, Al?
0: Oh, luxuriating in all my time that I have um, (laughs) with the boys at school. No, not really. I'm going to be um, catching up on my extremely long to-do list. That's what I'll be doing. And you?
2: I will be also catching up on an extremely long to-do list, and at the top of which is uh, this week we're launching our course uh, online on-demand course in how to use Scrivener. So for people who have, oh, that's exciting. Yeah, people who've who've got Scrivener, and the the most common thing I hear. So Scrivener, if you're not sure, is is if is a. a tool that's designed for writers and it's ideal for long form writing like books so it can divide into chapters, it can help you create your characters help you plot things out and move things around and it's a lot more uh, robust and a lot more, it's a lot easier to use than Word um, but uh, I, the most common thing I hear people say who get Scrivener is oh, I think I'm only using about 10 or 20% of its features mm. and that's true you know when I started using it I think I was the same but it can do so much more, but I I think it just, it it may seem daunting or complicated, but but what this course does is, you know, spell it out step by step on, here's what you can do with your characters, here's what you can do with, you know, your research and all that kind of stuff so that it makes the whole process of using Scrivener easy. So, yes, there you go. that's our course at the Australian Writers' Centre. So uh, thank you, everyone, who has been listening. Thank you uh, for all your reviews and your emails. If you would like to email us, it's podcast at Where can we find you on social media, Al?
0: Well, I think you'll probably find me quite a lot on Facebook this week. I've got, uh, got a bit of Facebooking action to do. So you will find me at Alison Tate Writer on Facebook.
2: Wonderful. And on Twitter?
0: At Altate.
2: and uh, I'm at Valerie Koo on Twitter, and of course you can uh, find out lots of information at the Australian Writers Centre, writerscentre.com.au. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll chat to you next week. Bye.